we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. In 2021, what killed more Americans than guns and traffic combined? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. Fentanyl ushered in a new era of anesthesia. It made outpatient surgery safe and ultimately commonplace. In contrast to morphine or reparidine, better known as Demerol, Fentanyl is really short-acting and allows patients to emerge from anesthesia quite fast. The downside for the safety profile is that fentanyl is 100 times more powerful than morphine. Now, of course, anesthesiologists, unlike the vast majority of drug abusers, are trained professionals and are constantly monitoring a patient's oxygen, breathing, pulse, and blood pressure. Now that fentanyl has become a street drug, it's become a quick path to death. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, better known as the CDC, fentanyl is now the top cause of death among U.S. adults aged 18 to 45, more than COVID-19, suicides, and car accidents. Out of 2022's over 100,000 drug overdose deaths, 19% were due to fentanyl. How did it become so popular? 75% of overdose, overdose deaths are due to opioids. The legal prescriptions for hydrocodone, oxycodone, oxymorphone had been the main cause of overdose deaths, but after they came under scrutiny, and the subjects of multiple lawsuits, fentanyl hit the streets. Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than heroin. A lethal dose fits on the tip of a pencil. And fentanyl's synthetic, meaning it can be made in a lab from chemicals. Heroin is made from poppies. Worse, fentanyl is slipped into other illicitly obtained prescription pills unbeknownst to the buyer of the drug. Fentanyl and its ingredients are mainly smuggled into the U.S. from Mexico by the cartels and is much cheaper than other opioids. Fentanyl is very versatile, can be injected, snorted, sniffed, smoked, taken by pill, or spiked onto blotter paper. Teens have become a large portion of its victims as fentanyl has been sold via some social media outlets. This is stunning. Fentanyl was identified in more than 77% of fatal overdoses among adolescents in the first half of 2021. I'm disturbed that all I'm hearing about is Narcan, Narcan, Narcan. This drug reverses the effects of narcotics. An over-the-counter version of Narcan, a nasal spray, was approved for purchase without a prescription by the FDA in this March, March 2023. Now, while this may save a life in the short term, it doesn't stop drug use, doesn't really treat drug use. I wonder whether it would make drug use worse 
if the user knows there's a quick reversal. Believe me, after working in the ER, an overdose does not scare off an addict from using drugs again. And what's wrong with Americans that they consume so many mind-altering drugs? Hopefully, the $50 billion in settlements from the drug makers will go to prevention of addiction in the first place. Today, we are so fortunate and so I'm just so happy to have Dr. Molly Rutherford discuss the addiction problem and offer some positive solutions for patients. Now, I'm sure you all have heard Dr. Molly before. She's been on the show a couple of times and people love her. I love her and I'm glad she's back. Dr. Molly Rutherford is the founder, medical director, and physician at Bluegrass Family Wellness, a direct primary care clinic in Kentucky. She's board certified in family medicine and addiction medicine and employs a holistic approach to her patient's physical health. She has more than a decade of experience in treating opiate addiction. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you. Thank you for having me back on. Well, let's get with it. I, you know, when I was an anesthesia resident, fentanyl had just come out. It was brand new. It was called sublimase. And we were thrilled to have this short acting drug. And it's almost like now what happened with propofol when Michael Jackson um, OD'd on propofol, everybody was afraid of it. And Provofol, which is trade name Diprovan, was a fabulous new anesthetic. It was quick acting, short acting, and uh, it suddenly these things hit the streets or start being abused, and it, it gives a bad name to good anesthetics. And fentanyl has just gone off the rails. So let's get started. I just want to ask, why do you think Americans consume so many mind-altering drugs? Well, I think they there are multiple reasons. Um, I think we, we have a, a crisis of mental health in the United States. Um, it's not new, but it, it certainly worsened during the pandemic because, um, you know, isolate, social isolation is not good for people who have depression, anxiety, and so forth. And like you mentioned, we tend to focus on addressing things after they develop. So we're not very good at prevention. Um, there's not a lot of money in prevention. There's a lot more money in therapeutics, you know, um, as we've seen with big pharma. So the, our focus in our medical care or sick care system, healthcare system, however you want to describe it, tends to be on uh, putting band-aids on things once the problem is already there. Um, so that that's that's one reason. And then the availability too. It's uh, these drugs are e probably easier for kids to get than alcohol. You know, so. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of factors that go into that. Well, I just feel like uh, I re I remember back in the day. I'm a child of the '60s that um, there is a whole group of hippies that instead of getting high on pot or cocaine or whatever else people were using, is getting high on life. 
And that there was a whole high on life movement of trying to find ways to be happy instead of using drugs. So we'll talk about that when we talk about some solutions. Well, first, just so everybody knows what we're talking about, what is addiction? Addiction, well, there's a lot of debate around that, but um, addiction is considered to be a chronic brain disease. And that's based on the fact that when, if we do MRIs, we can actually, we can see damage within the brain um, of somebody who's been chronically using. I think a more simple definition of addiction is continuing to use or continuing a certain behavior despite repeated negative consequences. So that sounds very simple, but I think we have to think of it along a spectrum too. Like you you can have very mild addiction. Like I could have very mild addiction to my cell phone, for example. Like I know that if I'm, if I'm looking at my cell phone, looking at Instagram or something, and next thing I know, 30 minutes later, that's a negative consequence, right? But it's not a severe negative consequence. So that's a, a mild, I would say a mild addiction because I keep doing it, even though I know there is a negative consequence, but um, a more severe addiction would be like your chronic alcoholic who has had several DUIs, um, you know, maybe even some, some physical health consequences like pancreatitis from drinking. And that, that disease is so advanced at this point, there's so much damage, which within the region of the brain that, um, there, there are several regions involved. I won't get too deep into the science, but at that point it's so advanced. It's just the person, it doesn't make any sense to the person's loved one but that person really has no control. The, the primitive part of their brain has kind of taken over so that the, the cortex, the cerebral cortex, which is where our rational thought, you know, where we can convince ourselves, no, don't, don't make this decision. It's a bad decision has been completely hijacked by the more primitive part of the brain. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. In, indeed, it does. And uh, some mental illness has that same sort of thing where you don't realize that something's amiss, that things seem just okay to you. And even though your life is falling apart, somebody doesn't look up and say, oh, my life is falling apart. They just continue to do that behavior. And right. it's yeah, and it seems so distressing for the family, like you said. They think, isn't it obvious? You know, he's lost his job. I don't like him anymore. His kids are afraid of him. Why doesn't he stop? It sounds so easy for the person who's outside looking in. Well, I'll tell you this story because this this is actually in, you know, we have addiction in my family, which is one of the reasons I've always been fascinated by it. But, um, so my, my brother has, has a nicotine addiction. He started smoking when he was really young. And then a few years ago, December, 2020, my cousin, who he had been in recovery from opioids for a long time, but he, he relapsed and then he ended up overdosing and dying in December of 2020. And 
when right like a few days before he relapsed before he died he was he was off the rails there was you know it, it was his behavior was making no sense and and i was with my brother at the time and he you know he said i just don't understand he's got so much going for him he's an attorney he finally got his license back you know and i said you totally understand because <laughs> you know you can't quit smoking even though you have all these negative consequences from it it's just it's just a different level when you're using something that's lethal, that's immediately lethal. I mean, we all know cigarettes are lethal, but they just take a lot longer to kill the person than than an opioid or fentanyl. So, um, yeah, he and he was like, you know what? You're right. You're mm-hmm. exactly right. So um, that that's how I try to explain it to family members when they when they can't really understand, because I think most people like. I don't want to say we all have the diagnosis or deserve the diagnosis of addiction, but I think we all have maybe something that we struggle with that we, that we know is probably not the best for us, but we, we will still do it and, and, you know, take the negative consequences. Well, that's like women who can't get away from bad boys. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's funny, you know, we see the word aholic, kind of thrown around kind of a misuse of the word aholic, but it's the same almost with addiction. You know, people say you're addicted to shopping, but I guess it is that when people have spent all their money, but they still go out shopping and charge up the credit cards, they're having a, a negative consequence from a behavior. Right. And if, if you look at the DSM-5, there, you know, you have to, in order to get the, well, I think they maybe they've even changed in the DSM five to where there's not just one category like addiction, there's substance use disorders, and then they're categorized severity based on how many, you know, how many, um, how many boxes you check in terms of how much, how much damage has been done. Um, but yeah, I, the way I look at it is sort of a, as a continuum and I don't look at, but, but of course nobody wants to be labeled an addict or be told that they have addiction. So I have to be careful, you know, not to label everything as addiction, but I, but I think also we, we have to stop calling I, I don't like the term mental health so much because I feel like it does discredit the brain. You know, it's it's really a lot of these things are problems within the brain. Um and and you know th- there's a there's argument lately about antidepressants and whether that theory of um decreased neurotransmitters are involved and if the medicines actually work. And I I, I agree with all of that. But I think fundamentally, you know, these mental health problems are coming from our, our brain. So I think we have to acknowledge that more and acknowledge the whole person, like every physical symptoms come from mental health problems and things are connected more than how we categorize or how we put things in silos in medicine sometimes. Well, are some people more prone to addiction than others? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are definitely genetic factors. Um, There are, it's, it's complex. It's not like, you know, breast cancer, where we've identified, oh, if you have this gene, you're definitely going to get it. It's more like, if you have this gene or that gene, or maybe a combination of these genes, you're more likely to get it, but it's not predetermined. So adverse, um, 
adverse childhood experiences contribute, of course, you know, what your parent modeling of your parents' behavior can contribute. And then sometimes it's not clear. I mean, sometimes there are kids that are raised in families that don't have any clear genetic um, predisposition and, 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 you know, they were raised in all the right ways and they still develop addiction. So it's, I guess it's kind of like cancer in that way. You can have like a spontaneous cancer or you can have a cancer that's related to some gene that, that was passed down. Wow. And, and in saying that, and we'll be discussing this throughout the hour, I don't want people to get discouraged and think, oh, my mother was an addict. So that means I'll be an addict. And, and, um, we're not such that our fate is always written down and there's nothing we can do about it. So when we come back from the break, we'll talk some more about some, some of the medical issues in addiction and, and um, the strength of drugs, how potent they are. Do that, does that matter? And how, how we got into this mess. But before then, I just want to talk about Cofix RX. This is a very simple idea. This is something to help prevent us from really getting upper respiratory tract infections that can go all the way down to our lungs, just like COVID could. And what this is, it's a nasal spray. It's got iodine, and it's known to be a powerful antiviral agent. It also has xylitol, which is also antiviral. And it's kind of like having an airbag in a car. Nothing can guarantee that you're not going to get hurt in an accident, but you do everything you can. You wear a seatbelt, you use the airbag to try not to get killed or injured. And that's what Cofix RX is for. And even though the COVID emergency has been undeclared, there's still good old fashioned colds that come around. There's regular old flu that comes around and we just plain don't want to get sick. And most of these viruses are inhaled through the nose. So it's like, let's nip it in the bud. Take the Cofix RX. I use it and, you know, knock on plastic and wood. Um, it's helped me a lot and helped me through the winter. And now that I'm stuck with allergies, I can't tell the difference between allergies and getting a cold, but I use the Cofix RX and hope it's just only an allergy when my nose starts to run. So you can get it anywhere. It's made in the USA, invented in the USA. And you can just go right on our page here. We have a Cofix RX button. You can press that on, learn more about it, and buy some there if you like. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. The pandemic may be over for some 
but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body, and now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. Now, back to the show. I want to ask you, doctor, does it matter what drug you're taking? Like, is it worse to be taking heroin or oxycodone or fentanyl as, as far as getting addicted in the first place? Um, yes, I think so. I think so, that we, there, well, we learned, uh, when I took my addiction training, I learned that certain drugs are more highly addictive. And so th they get that from animal studies and then they get that from epidemiological studies. Uh, nicotine is highly addictive, for example. Um, and then opioids are highly addictive. And then in my experience, it seems that people have the hardest time quitting nicotine, to be honest. Um, but opioids are challenging. I think, I think opioids are much more challenging because of the physical withdrawal that people experience. Um, so the physical withdrawal from other drugs just is not on par with the withdrawal from opioids. It, people feel like they're dying. They feel like they have the flu and it can last a while. Um, and so it's very hard to get through that without the help of something like um, buprenorphine or methadone, um, for example. Um, they just, the relapse rate is very, very high. Um, and and I, I do think marijuana, mar well, we know marijuana is addictive as well, but um, it's easier to quit. The withdrawal symptoms are not as severe. Um, there, there will be people listening to this who, who, will, who will argue that marijuana is not addictive. But those of us who treat addiction, we've, we've met people who've been addicted to, to marijuana. It's not, not as common. It's not as intense of an addiction. So it's not as obvious. Um, and it doesn't get people into the type of trouble, typically, as um, other drugs do. And then you know, alcohol withdrawal is really unpleasant also, but it's, it's also just not everybody likes it. Um, and then the other, the other issue that I want to get across for prevention is the, the longer you can delay your kids from 
experimenting with any of these substances, the less likely they are to develop an addiction. So that's really important. It's interesting. I think about myself when uh, one, today's pot is not the same as the pot from 40 years ago. And two, as far as I was concerned, I was in medical school when drugs were around and people started using cocaine and stuff. And I just kind of thought, one, I don't know what it is. Who is this creature selling you this crap? And two, I didn't want to mess up my brain. And I, I, you poor teenagers, you know, teenagers don't think straight in the first place, but maybe they'll respond if you tell them, you don't know what it is. You don't know where it came from. Right. I think some some kids will. And then there are kids that are just, they're going through stuff and they 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 really want to, some of them want to numb their brain and some of them want to fit in. And, you know, and they may use because they feel really awkward in social situations. Um and and you know, peer pressure is a real thing. As I mean, I think we saw peer pressure even among our physician colleagues during the pandemic. <laughs> um, it, it it can be pretty powerful. So, uh, but yeah, I I my strategy with my kids is I've always been very open with them about addiction, and I'm very honest with them about it. Running in our family, you know, they know that their cousin died. Um, they know that their un- my uncle, you know, ruined his life with alcohol, things like that. So I'm honest with them about that. And then I'm also really strict, you know, and I, and I have, I even have the cartridges at home to do a urine test for nicotine, because the thing that the kids are doing now is vaping and they're vaping nicotine and then they, and then they'll switch to marijuana. So I have, I have urine drug screens on, t- on you know, on hand so that I can test my kids if I need to. And then I think I'm pretty sure you can buy like an alcohol, one of those um, breathalyzers to keep at mm-hmm. home as well. So um, I, I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I'll, I'll just admit, like, I don't have anything to hide. I was, I experimented when I was a teenager. Um, I, I had a lot of anxiety and then, and then my home life, there, there was stuff going on in my home life that was uncomfortable. My, my parents' marriage was kind of falling apart. They, they ended up divorcing when I left for college and then they ended up getting back together later on. That's the whole nother story. <laughs> but, uh, um, so, so I was, I was, I did experiment and, um, kind of numbed myself a little bit, you know, and I, I, thankfully I just, I never, it never stuck. I never developed like an addiction to alcohol or, or cigarettes or marijuana. I I never use any hard drugs because I was like you, I was kind of like fearful of those at least. Um, So, you know, it's really important to, to talk, talk to your kids. If you're raising kids, don't be naive. Don't be naive to think that your kids aren't doing these dumb things because I don't think my parents thought I would because I always did well in school. I had good grades, you know, by all appearances, I, I was very smart, but I made some really stupid decisions. So, <laughs> Well, when I think about all this and, you know, what, what you can say to people to not use drugs, 
One thing that I've heard patients even say, even though when you first start taking drugs, it makes you feel good, then at some point, it doesn't even make you feel good. You're just doing it because your body's addicted to it. So, well, especially with opioids, because, um, you know, you reach a point where people aren't even really getting high when they're using heroin or they're using opioids or fentanyl. They're, they're really trying to feel normal. And that's why medications like methadone and buprenorphine are helpful because they, they bring, like if a patient comes in and I, and I give them an induction of buprenorphine, I can get them to that point where they're not in horrible withdrawal. And so they're able to function and kind of move past that miserable place. And then they take, they take a daily dose of that medicine for a while and let their brain heal. And then they can eventually taper off of it sometimes. So that's, that's, that's definitely true of opioids. Um, you know, after, after being addicted for a few months, they're not really getting high. Um, and then another thing to tell kids is that these street drugs, even marijuana is laced with fentanyl these days. We, they, they truly do not know what they're getting. Um, I've had a, a few patients lately who come in and they think that they've been using Percocets. I had one patient come in for induction and she thought she was using Percocets, but the urine drug screen was not matching up. And so, you know, it turns out she was, she, she was taking fentanyl. It was uh, a pill that was manufactured by the cartels, I guess, that they're selling and telling people that it's Percocet. So, um, mm. and then I had, yeah, I had another patient overdose. She thought she took a Xanax and, uh, thankfully she, she survived it, but it was, it was fentanyl. So. Well, fentanyl's cheap to make. And, and I have to say it's fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. I get so irritated when the people on the news, people are supposed to know better say fentanyl. It's F-E-N-T-A-N-Y-L, fentanyl. So everybody listening, at least if you talk about the drug, say the right word. You'll sound very smart. (laughs) But, um, you know, I chuckle, but my goodness, it scares me, these fake pills and the pills being cut with it. Because believe me, in training in anesthesia, you give this drug very carefully, you give it, you titrate it little bits at a time, you know, micrograms, 50 micrograms at a time. And when I think about these, these people who obviously don't care about humanity, who are cooking up this crap in the lab, and the ingredients are cheap, simple to make, and uh, they don't care. They're making a lot of money from it. And right. somehow the war on drugs doesn't seem to stop it. I mean, it just pours over the border. And I know in in the States, a lot of people were making meth at home, you know, and cooking it and out in the country and whatnot, since it stinks so bad. I just wonder when are we going to start having black market fentanyl, not from Mexico, but that somebody in the United States is going to start making it. 
Right. They well, there's there's no demand for that because there's so much flowing over the border. It's yeah, it's unbelievable. And then if they if they take some of it off the street, more more comes in. It's you know, I'm married to a law enforcement officer. And so we have these discussions and and he agrees with me that, you know, trying to stop the supply, it just it, it's just not effective. I wish it was, but it's just not. So, um, you know, we really need to start, we need, need to focus on just educating these kids, youngest age possible, trying to keep people from using. And then, the, you know, the, the argument of legalization, I think that's a legit conversation to have um, because would that cripple the cartels? I mean, would it make it, safer. Um, you know, I, I think we have some examples where I think, you know, San Francisco and some of the open air drug markets are an example of how harm reduction can be taken a bit too far and how it doesn't work. But on the other hand, the, you know, just treating it purely as a law enforcement crisis is, is not really helpful either. So I think, you know, well, we, we need and, to work together and, and tackle it from both ends. Well, I think so. And even from the law enforcement end, when there's a, a movie, New Jack City, that I guess it probably came out in the late 80s. Oh, Wesley and, Snipes, right? Yes, and Ice-T yeah. uh, playing a drug dealer. Now he plays a policeman. And right. uh, uh the theme song to New Jack City, they talk about uh, how it's it, it was a way for people to make money. And, you know, at the end of the song, he's saying this is no way to live being a drug addict or a drug dealer. But one of the things when you said trying to stop the drugs, one of the lines is, so what if you get me, there'll be another one after me. So there's always another drug dealer around the corner it's a good way to make money and and even like in the song says bam another brother drops and talking about well you know you sell drugs you get killed but they're not thinking that way it's a quick way to make money in the song they say look at all these p's and g's of dead presidents and the money. And, and then he says, can you see me working at Mickey D's? And I just think about these people who get into selling drugs. It is a good way to make money, but certainly not uh, good for your health as far right. as, you the know, longevity. Okay. <laughs> yes, you might make money for a few months and then find yourself shot in the streets. So um, the glorification of it is uh is so wrong but so that's uh, you know some of these videos and and all this that make it look cool it's, it's like it's not cool mm -mm. Um, no. so but when you're kids you want to be cool and then and then like you say when you're having problems and you just feel like you want to numb yourself certainly that's why people are driven to drink but um it just doesn't seem like even though drinking kills you, probably it's hard to know faster than cigarettes. And some people maybe cigarettes faster than drinking. 
It's not as instantaneous as an overdose with fentanyl or even heroin. You know, fentanyl has just gotten so much more popular. You don't even hear people talk about heroin anymore. It's It's still being sold as heroin, though. I mean, my patients think they're using heroin and it's pure fentanyl. Well, tell the challenge. Yeah. Tell the audience why on earth a patient, somebody who has the wherewithal to go to a doctor, would use heroin rather than a prescription medicine. Oh, they can't get the prescriptions anymore. That That's, yeah, I lived through that. Um, when I started treating addiction in 2008, we were um, helping people left and right through opioid addiction. Most people were using pills. Uh, they, you know, they would come in, we would know exactly the dose that they were using. And this buprenorphine that we would prescribe would um, work so well. I mean, it would just change their lives around overnight. They were able to get back to work and be present for their family and for their kids. And many people were able to expunge, you know, um, criminal records that they had. I mean, it was just, it was the like the glory days of treating addiction. It worked so well. And then uh, I think it was 2000, around 2011 in Kentucky when they started to, to clamp down on the prescript on the prescribing and they started to sort of um, scare all of the doctors uh, away from prescribing opioids. And so in typical American fashion, we swung the pendulum too far the other way. And many people were left some of them were addicted and some of them were, were being treated for chronic pain. And, but the withdrawal was too much. Even some of the people with, with chronic pain maybe didn't know they were addicted. And then once the supply is cut off, the, the cartels were here with the supply of heroin. So if you haven't read that book, um, Oh gosh, I think it's called dreamland. Um, it tells the whole story of how the cartels came in just in time when the government was squeezing the supply of the of the prescription pain pills. And it, it was it's really fascinating. Oh. And um, yeah, so that that's basically what, that what happened. Uh, it's really hard for someone to get to go and get a legitimate prescription and doctor shop. Uh, I guess it was the term that we used to use because any doctor can look at the prescription monitoring program now and they can see, uh, they can look at a patient's uh, controlled substance history. And so they can see if a patient is going to multiple doctors to get prescriptions and all the addicts know that. So they just don't do that anymore. Well, very interesting. When we come back from the break, I want to talk to people so they know if they do have a chronic pain problem or have cancer, that there are things that can be done and it doesn't mean you're going to become a drug addict. So we'll talk about that when we get back from the break. For now, I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And as you know, we are always a beat ahead. You can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. with an encore at 11 and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. You can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. The best part for me is that all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and they're on lots of networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com forward slash pulse. 
one of the features of the show when this started over a year ago was that every day there's a different doctor. Mondays, there's me, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays with Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tangersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Out Loud. Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Reich. So there's everybody to listen to. Take your pick, take them all. Five days a week, America Out Loud Pulse. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. So before we went on the break, I want everybody to know that there are pain medicines that are fine and even opiates when you have cancer pain, chronic pain. Can you talk about that treatment and how it works and what people can do and whatnot? Sure. Well, I still have a few patients who have been on opioids for chronic pain for years and they still need them. Uh, and that's, and sometimes that's appropriate. I don't, I don't love opioids for chronic pain. They work really well for acute pain, it, but I find that if someone is on them for long term, they just kind of stop work. They don't work anymore. You know, the patient is still complaining of a lot of pain, but you know, you have to treat the individual in front of you and everyone is different. That's one of the things that I don't like about our new guideline focus medicine is we, you know, we try to put everybody into the same box and that's just not, that's not realistic. Um, and then there are, you know, physical therapy is excellent for, for pain, staying in shape. Um, many, many of the people originally that were taking pain, pain pills chronically had chronic back pain. And that's, um, that's a very debilitating condition and often we couldn't find a real reason for it but opioids definitely do not work very well for chronic back pain so you know getting somebody into a good physical therapist um and then even a pain psychologist in some cases uh, i participated in a, a task force in 2018 with uh dr vanila singh she she was the head of that do you know vanila Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she, she was the chairperson. I was, I was lucky enough to get to work with her and so many other brilliant people on that task force. And we, we have a report, you can find it online. It's the, 
best practices, pain management, um, interagency task force or something. Like if you just go to HHS and type in pain management task force, you should be able to find it. And so we, we identified gaps in pain management. Um, we went through, you know, the CDC's recommendations for uh, around opioids. And we, we addressed that, you know, they, they probably went too far and they scared too many primary care doctors away from opioids. It, it was a great experience. And um, unfortunately, I don't think the report got very much press. I don't think it got very much attention. But it, it, it really does have some helpful information in there for people who are struggling with chronic pain. It's, it's a huge problem. Well, it, it really is. And I think there's so many things that the way medicine is practiced now that feed into it. You talk about there's a huge big picture, not only of the patients, but of the politics of medicine that you can get these pills paid for, boom, write a prescription. It'll The insurance will pay for it, but insurance may not pay for a massage, which might be well better for your back pain than taking a bunch of pills. And this is sort of a problem. Things that work, even acupuncture for some people works beautifully and it's completely non-drug. And But then insurance doesn't pay for it. So, so many of the treatments that doctors give are dictated by what the insurance will pay for. Right, exactly. And y- you know, being an anesthesiologist, some of these nerve blocks are very effective to help with pain as well. Um, so- well, let me tell you a nerve block story since you brought it up. I had a patient that had what they now call complex regional pain syndrome, where you get pain in a, like your hand, you might've had an injury some time ago, then suddenly you get this terrible shooting pain and the injury's long gone, but the pain is left over. Well, there is a protocol where you did a nerve block, a, a nerve branch up in the neck. And the protocol says that you have to do it 10 days in a row, because you're basically kind of beating that little nerve to death and retraining the way it sends out its signals. So I had a patient come in for it. Her insurance company said, well, we'll approve you for three. And then if those work, then we'll approve the rest. And I sent in the protocol I that from several neurologists, it wasn't like I made it up and said, no, this is the protocol. 10 times before you decide whether it's going to work. They continued to keep on saying, okay, well, we'll give you four. Finally, I just treated the patient and didn't charge her. It, you know, <laughs> this yeah. is why I think so many times people just get the pills and these seven minute visits. How do you get a patient out of your office in seven minutes? You write a script. Correct. Correct. Yes. Thankfully, I don't have to do that anymore because I I started my direct care practice, you know, in um, 2015. So I can spend as much time as I want. But yeah, and and the people making those decisions at the insurance companies often they don't they don't have the expertise. They don't they don't have the knowledge to make those decisions. And the, and e- even if they did, they're really not calling the shots. It's you know, somebody higher than them saying, well, we, no, we're not going to spend that. No, we're not going to pay for that. 
And then, yeah, and then half the time it's not even a doctor who's doing the review. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. No, yep. That well, could be a whole other show on the on the, <laughs> the insurance. Oh, tell me. Well, you know, it's funny because so many of these topics that we talk about on this show, the insurance is it's like this background, a low-level fog that's surrounding so many of the other problems that we have. And, right. uh, you know, we take too many pills of all kinds in the first place. And one of the things that a lot of people are starting to do now, doctors, and I'm sure you help do it in your practice, is just getting people off of polypharmacy, as they call it, where there's just multiple, multiple drugs and one's piled on top of the next, you get a side effect from one, then you get another and another, and then they start peeling away some of these drugs. Yes, I'm able to do that. It's And it's great. It's very fulfilling. And I think patients want that now. I think, I think one of the good things that came out of the pandemic was I think it, it woke people up a little bit about the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, how profit driven they are and how they, you know, they really like the whole situation around ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, you know, and then giving remdesivir in the hospital, which didn't have any more data than the other two. Um, it's, it was just so clear that it was all, it was all driven by money. And so, and I think many people realize that now. And so they, they're seeking out doctors like me, they're seeking out doctors who do integrative medicine or functional medicine because they don't, they don't want to take these meds anymore. They, they're not trusting of mainstream medicine anymore. Well, it's interesting. And it happened just today that I came across this there was a um, task force of Stanford and Lancet Medical Magazine, and it was called The North American Opioid Crisis as a Case Study in Multi-System Regulatory Failure. Long, long title, but, and it is very long report divided up into groups. What was the first section and what was recommendation 1A, curtail pharmaceutical product promotion. Yep. 1B, decouple pharmaceutical industry donations to universities and professional associations from control over the content of medical education. Can you believe it? So it's this is very mainstream. So what you were mentioning about money, money, money. It's not just an opinion. This was a huge study, you know, put out by Stanford and they're talking about the revolving door. And we know that from the last FDA commissioner, what does he do? He's on, he's on the board of a pharmaceutical company. And yep. it's, so it, it has gone mainstream and the donations that these companies give to the politicians, both sides of the aisle, are astounding. Yes, to the politicians, to the universities. Somebody exposed that recently, like the Pfizer donations to the universities and the correlation with them uh, requiring, you know, having vaccination mandates. I mean, it's, it's just, it's out there. It's 
being exposed, which is good. I just hope we can reverse it. Well, we just have to remember, and you bring this up very early when you talk about treating the whole patient, that all these pharmaceuticals aren't necessarily the answer. Now, mind you, we aren't saying that there aren't appropriate times for medications come now, you know, high blood pressure, heart failure. There's so many things that you need appropriate medications for. But the idea of quickly going straight to a medication when perhaps a little bit of talk therapy, a little bit of getting to know about the patient's family. I look at what you shared with us today. Taking the time to talk to a patient in seven minutes, you couldn't get that story out of a patient. No, exactly. Yeah, it just you're exactly right. And um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I try to convince doctors to leave the system, primary care doctors, especially, but some specialists have left as well and doing more of a direct care model because it, it, it really is the best way to practice medicine. And I, I, I could never go back to those, you know, seven minute visits and feeling like I was not able to help anybody. Um, it's a lot more fulfilling to form a relationship with a patient and learn about their family too. That's what I love about family medicine is I get to know everybody. And when one family member comes in, I can say, well, how's so-and-so doing? And, you know, in college, like they, people like that. They like, they like having a relationship with their doctor. Well, uh, speaking of relationship with doctor is what do you think of this chat box and artificial intelligence and and having um, the GBT chat talk to you instead of a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I need I ask? But. I think it's creepy. I, I don't think, I don't worry too much about that replacing physicians. I think there's always going to be a market for uh, physicians who like, like myself who spend the time. Cause like I said, I think people crave that relationship. Um, I think they, I think they like getting to know their physician and, and forming a trust, you know, they want to trust their physician. How do you trust a robot? <laughs> well, you know, maybe some people might feel it's more anonymous and, and, True. Uh, yeah. you know, the ro robot's not going to turn on them and maybe the doctor will, I don't know. But the robot, the, what I look at a huge problem with the robot, I mean, other than the obvious, is that whatever you tell the robot has to be recorded within that robot. Whereas <laughs> if you're talking to a human being, you can listen and I know all of us in taking histories from people, you don't write down every single word. And if somebody has said something that was so deep and so personal and wasn't specific to their diagnosis, you don't write it down in the chart and, you know, right. where somebody might get a hold of it and blackmail them with that information. But if you tell it to a robot, it's written down. And guess what we all know? Anything written down is out there in the internet ether. Correct. I mean, written Correct. electronically, you know. Yes. Bring back pens and paper. 
Right. Well, and, and I do have electronic medical records, but I don't check any boxes. I don't use any ICD-10 codes. Nobody is getting that information. So that's probably another reason why my practice is growing is because people don't, they're, you know, they're kind of turned off by learning that, you know, all, many of these things that they tell their doctor are being tracked. They're being tracked by the, the hospital system and then ultimately by the government. That's right. That's right. And, and it, it used to be that talking like that sounded paranoid and, oh, these people are quackos. But I think now there's been enough information out there of what's been going on that we know it's true. It's easy to track people. And you never know when you're going to be a target. Because I used to always say, well, I'm a nobody. So who cares about me? And they aren't going to track me. But the data is always Laura, there. You went on Tucker. You went on Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. I was on Tucker before before he got canceled. So <laughs> I became a somebody. So somebody might care about me now. Right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you are a big somebody who I am always so glad to have on the show. I could have you on every week. We have so much to talk about just in medicine and trying and and trying to get it back to the way it should be my goodness if you could do one thing to try to change medicine what would you do i would i try to reach these students um we we have to get to into the medical students into the medical schools and reach these students uh because they're getting indoctrinated on many many things which is you know you talked about on on tucker's show and um i just want to reach them and and keep them committed to working for the individual patient because i feel like they're being taught to, to work for, you know, to do more population health or public health. And that's, that's not really what we're supposed to do. That's not what doctors are supposed to do. We're supposed to treat the patient in front of us. Well, you said it and leave the policy wonks to the policy wonks. And one of the problems with some of these policies, they come out of thin air. They're almost like they came out of a book and Whoever asked a doctor, that's what was so great that you were able to be on that uh, pain management best practices task force, that they actually had the wherewithal to ask doctors. How about this? (laughs) So, well, Dr. Rutherford, I want to thank you again for coming on this show. And I'm sure I'm going to invite you back. And I hope you say yes. Oh, of course I will. It's always fun. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) And thank everybody for listening. And remember that we do have the question and answer feature. And you can just send a question in, first name on your email spine, to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. And remember, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. Thanks again for listening. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.